0: Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics. I'm Major Alan Abrams, and I'm a defense counsel in the Air Force's Trial Defense Division. Our normal host, Daryl Johnson, did not fire me after the last episode, so I'm back for this go-round. Daryl will be back soon with his typically brilliant insights, though he was kind enough to share some with me in putting together this week's episode. Before we get into this week's episode, I'll note, like we always do, that this podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial. The ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the United States government, Department of Defense, Department of the Air Force, or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interest of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. For this week's episode, we're going to do yet another two-for-one in terms of our updates on the law. First, we'll cover two decisions by the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, United States versus Nelson, and United States versus Horn. For our Trial Skills segment, we'll talk about developing your case's story. Before we talk about the Nelson and Horn cases, I'm going to zoom out for just a second and touch on the cases we pick for this podcast. Generally, we try to incorporate cases into episodes close in time to when the decision is published. Sometimes, there's a lag. This week, we're focusing on the two most recent cases decided by the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, at least as of when I'm recording this, which is May 19th, 2022. That choice of content comes at the expense of talking about two other really interesting decisions that we haven't touched on yet, but that may be pretty important to trial practitioners. One is United States versus Wide Eyes, and the other is United States versus Givens. Wide Eyes had to do with the requirement for corroboration prior to the admission of alleged confessions, and Givens was about the timeliness of the filing of defense motion for defective referral. We may get to analyzing those cases later on this year. After all, the first decision from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces in the current term wasn't until December of 2021, and it started back in October. Now, let's talk about the United States versus Nelson decision, which the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces decided unanimously on April 25, 2022. The issue before the court was whether the appellant giving over the passcode to his cell phone was a voluntary act. As in so many cases, the cell phone mattered in this case because it's where all of the incriminating evidence was. Like other search issues, the court applied a totality of the circumstances analysis to the facts. Although those facts are why the appellant lost and the search was upheld, they offer some valuable takeaways for defense counsel as they go forward advising clients and put out any preventative educational messages about cell phone searches. Here's some of the main facts related to how the search came about. The appellant met with law enforcement on what we'll call Day 1. When the appellant met with law enforcement on Day 1, he was advised of his rights against self-incrimination under Article 31 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. When the appellant met with law enforcement on day one, he waived his rights against self-incrimination. When the appellant met with law enforcement on day one, he was asked multiple times to consent to a search of his phone, but declined. The phone was then seized as law enforcement sought a search authorization, which they obtained. The next day, so day two, law enforcement met with the appellant again for approximately three minutes. On day two, the appellant was not advised of his rights against self-incrimination. When told that there was a search authorization and asked whether he was willing to unlock the phone, the appellant said, and here are the key words, quote, I guess I don't have a choice. End quote. The appellant did not wait for a response to that statement and immediately unlocked his phone, helping investigators keep it unlocked so they could get the contents of his phone. There are other factors and key facts discussed in the opinion, but for purposes of our discussion, those are the big ones. The gist of the defense argument against the evidence at trial and on appeal boiled down to saying that the combination of presenting the search warrant and asking for the passcode forced the appellant to give up the passcode, something he had refused to give up five times prior. The argument didn't fly. Here are three takeaways from the decision for trial practitioners. First, just because a client refuses to disclose something to law enforcement at one time doesn't mean he or she can't decide to turn it over later. I know that's not necessarily earth shattering, but the specific surrounding facts and circumstances do matter in cases like this to include timing, whether threats or intimidation are used by law enforcement and the respectfulness of law enforcement. The last of which the court called, quote, key, quote in this case, under the label of professionalism. But the big thing on which the whole thing seemed to turn was that the appellant knew and then waived his Article 31 rights on day one. That mattered because as the court analyzed the issue, a second rights advisement was not required on day two because it was basically a continuation of the day one interview. So even though the court doesn't put it this way, it effectively treats the appellant unlocking the passcode under the erroneous impression that he had to as further waiver of his article 31 rights. I should note that the proximity of the day one and day two interviews seems an area to distinguish this case from maybe cases you might encounter in your own practice later on. Second, the court seems to implore practitioners in footnote 5 of the opinion to consider starting the analysis of statements, like the unlocking of a cell phone in this case, by asking whether the statements are testimonial and incriminating. The Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination only applies to statements that are both incriminating and testimonial. So if a statement isn't testimonial, the prosecution wins the issue. Same if a statement isn't incriminating. Look out for this analysis in future prosecution responses to motions to suppress. Third, and this is really the educational piece of the takeaway, is just how little law enforcement has to do beyond be professional to gain access to a phone. The court asserted there was no obligation to readvise of rights against self-incrimination on day two in this case because it was basically an extension of the first interview where rights were waived. There was no obligation to correct that misunderstanding that the appellant had, quote, no choice to turn over his passcode, particularly given the immediate unlocking without waiting for a response. So the truthful statement that there was a search authorization resulted only in acquiescence, which is different from consent as a label, but seemingly the same in its effect under the law permitting the search. So how do you educate clients on this? Well, they may wish to turn on passcodes rather than fingerprint or facial recognition to unlock their phone. We already knew that probably from the Mitchell case a couple years ago. They may wish to refrain from consenting to any searches of their cell phone, regardless of whether they exercise their rights against self-incrimination. Beyond exercising the right to remain silent altogether, they may wish to wait for a response to questions related to searches by law enforcement, understanding law enforcement is generally authorized to lie to the suspects they interview. If law enforcement wants to lie in relation to a search, that's their own risk to bear in terms of the analysis for cases like this one. Clients may wish to decline to acquiesce to a search authorization or order to unlock a phone, or explicitly ask to exercise their rights against self-incrimination. You may even want to give clients the words to do so, so that they're not trying to fumble and think through it on the spot. You can give them the words, you can give them the business card, you can give them a note, you can give them novelty sunglasses, whatever you want to give them to guide them on what to say. Words like, I don't agree to discuss this, or anything related to this. Now we're at a later time, until I speak with my attorney. You pick. Let's switch to the United States v. Horn decision. This was also unanimous L for the defense, this time on the issue of apparent unlawful command influence. The Horn case is a bit of a relic in the sense that it deals with the pre-2019 version of the statute against unlawful command influence codified in Article 37 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So whereas the appellate courts in Horn were looking for whether the alleged unlawful command influence created an intolerable strain on the public's perception of the military justice system, the same question today on apparent unlawful command influence would look for actual and material prejudice to an accused. The fact pattern on the Horn case is a bit attention-grabbing. It's a sexual assault case. The alleged victim sent a text message to her husband that she was falling asleep when she was, in fact, continuing to drink at the hotel bar with colleagues, including the appellate. After the alleged offense later that evening, her first call the next day was to her husband reporting her allegation of sexual assault. In other words, right off the bat, the husband, who is an active duty military member, was what some would call an outcry witness, and was definitely a potential impeachment witness. Law enforcement sought to interview him, but before they did so, the counsel for the alleged victim intervened. He told law enforcement to knock it off and told the same to trial counsel, who then went on to reiterate that same message to law enforcement. In turn, law enforcement relented and did not interview the husband as planned. As an aside, I'll note that Horn was an Air Force case, but even the court appeared confused, at least compared to the briefs in the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals' decision, about whether the apostrophe goes before or after the SN victims. Regardless, there are a bunch of reasons why the court looks for and determines that the prosecution proved beyond a reasonable doubt that the apparent unlawful command influence committed by the prosecutor and the counsel for the alleged victim tag-teaming to limit the scope of the investigation, in other words something that would basically be obstruction of justice if the defense did it, did not place an intolerable strain on the public's perception of the military justice system. The bottom line reasons as to why are because, one, the problematic prosecutor and counsel for the alleged victim were off the case before trial, two, the husband was eventually interviewed by law enforcement and defense counsel, and three, the lack of actual prejudice to the appellant at trial. My read on the case is that there's room to disagree with the court's conclusion on that last part, but that's more of a disagreement about the facts than the law. For defense practitioners, there are three major takeaways based on this case. First, actual prejudice will be the focus of unlawful command influence issues going forward. It's a significant factor under the pre-2019 standard for apparent unlawful command influence, and it is the standard for all claims of unlawful command influence subsequent to 1 January 2019. That brings me to the second big point, which is that it is not entirely clear how this actual prejudice standard, codified in 10 U.S.C. section 837C, will mesh with the current test for apparent unlawful command influence. The statute says, quote, no finding or sentence of a court-martial may be held incorrect on the ground of a violation of this section unless the violation materially prejudices the substantial rights of the accused, End quote. Okay, is there anything that we have to assess before we examine prejudice? Who is it who has to show prejudice? The amended statute doesn't answer either of those questions. And make a little sense out of that. We got to step back a little bit. So let's think about the current test for apparent unlawful command influence described in the Horn case. Step one, the defense has to show some evidence of unlawful command influence. It's a low standard, but the defense needs to show more than just a mere allegation or speculation. Step two, the prosecution has to show beyond a reasonable doubt, either A, the facts claimed by the defense don't exist, or B, the facts claimed by the defense do not constitute unlawful command influence. If the prosecution fails, go to step three, which requires the prosecution to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the unlawful command influence did not place an intolerable strain upon the public's perception of the military justice system, and that an objective, disinterested observer, fully informed of all the facts and circumstances, would not harbor a significant doubt about the fairness of the proceeding. So, where does prejudice factor into this test? Is it a new step four? Is it incorporated into step one? Does it replace step three? Does it replace steps two and three? Do we presume material prejudice if the prosecution fails to meet its burden under step three and then make the prosecution disprove the absence of material prejudice? And who has the burden to show this actual prejudice? These are all legitimate questions you might raise in your cases when challenging unlawful command influence in the future. Although I can't answer where it will line up in the test, my gut is that you might see judges assuming for the sake of argument that everything else is met and deciding the issue on a lack of material prejudice, so basically dodging the question. And if the prejudice analysis is similar to what the majority did in Horn, my hunch is that they'll be looking to the moving party to articulate and establish prejudice, a position that Senior Judge Ryan states explicitly in her concurrence. That said, the third major takeaway is that anyone putting together an unlawful command influence motion will likely want to look at the court's analysis section in this case. The first three paragraphs, and in particular the third, offer a clinic on how to detail all of the problems in a case and show how they might establish prejudice for command actions. The court went out of its way to praise how both parties set out clear, non-conclusory arguments for a finding in their favor. Heck, the defense offered... 15 different reasons. Even if you don't use these in your own cases, and the court did discard some as general complaints about the military justice system at large, this is a starting point for brainstorming, for ideas. Examples include the intentional abandonment of evidence believed to be exculpatory in nature, the improper influence over an independent law enforcement agency conducting an investigation, the conduct by lawyers who should know better, the abdication of the prosecutorial function to the alleged victim's counsel, The list goes on. Admittedly, some of these go towards appearance rather than prejudice directly to an accused. But as you read the opinion, what will likely jump out is that the more case-specific you can get in terms of showing prejudice, the better. Of course, getting specific means you risk foregoing certain specific claims that you haven't otherwise thought of, made, or captured. That could limit the consideration of those arguments on appeal if there is a conviction. So go big with your list and also appreciate the risk that in going big and going specific that may be part of the trade-off as you endeavor to show prejudice. To mitigate against this, you may want to talk through the issues with someone outside of your defense team to get some fresh perspective and ideas. Now that we've covered two recent appellate decisions, let's turn to our focus on advocacy and talk about developing the story of your case. This is going to be more of a big picture talk as opposed to a technical in the weeds, here's how to do it talk. Now, we could just dive in and I tell you how to develop a story, or at least some ideas on how to do it, but it's probably worth stepping back first and addressing why we want a story in our case at all. I'll borrow a pretty concise summation of why from Michael Lewis, the author and podcast host famous for books turned into movies like Moneyball and The Big Short. Listening to a recent episode of his Against the Rules podcast, where he's doing a breakdown on experts in his current season, one thing he said stood out, and I'll paraphrase it here. People, and I mean just all people. Are poor at applying a lot of data logically, but they're really good at finding and buying into a story that makes sense to them no matter how it lines up with the data. Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning behavioral psychologist, made a similar point with co authors Cass Sunstein and Oliver Siboney, and I, I hope I'm saying that last author's name right, in his most recent book, Noise. The focus of the book is about how and why humans reach decisions that should be pretty close together from each other, but wind up being wildly different, which the authors refer to as noise. A brief passage comparing how we handle evidence versus how we handle stories goes, quote, In general, we jump to conclusions, then stick to them. We think we base our opinions on evidence, but the evidence we consider and our interpretation of it are likely to be distorted, at least to some extent, to fit our initial snap judgment, end quote. That snap judgment is, in large part, the story. I say all this because the story matters. You likely know that from your lived experience anyways, how you might get annoyed at a party talking to a rambling person without a clear story to tell, or how you are drawn to someone or something with a really compelling narrative arc that you can wrap your head around. And the science backs it up such that getting it right may turn a case that you should lose into a win, or vice versa if you get it wrong. With that in mind, let's talk about a framework for developing the story of your case. I'll start with what I do at the outset of a case when I get one, which I'll readily admit I took from a now-reservist, Major Jarrett Merck. When I first get a case, I break it down. I go through all the evidence, I get out a notepad, and make a four-quadrant chart. At the top, I cover good facts on one side and bad facts on the other. On one side of the bottom half, I cover all of the questions, potential emotions, and potential experts I see. On the other half, I detail all the evidence I want to ask for in discovery and production. Now that the case is broken down, it's time to build it up again. I do that through investigation, especially interviews, and motions practice. I default to motions being bifurcated from trial on the merits and use the writing of the motions to tease out the story of the case and also to test it against in-person witness testimony regarding those motions. Then we get to the end of the case. I've got the law prepped. I've got the evidence down pat. It's time to tie it all together as we get close to trial. That's when I grab a whiteboard or another notepad. It doesn't matter which. I make two columns. One is for the most important good facts and legal standards from the case. The other is for the bad facts and legal standards from the case that we have to navigate. We want to play up the good facts. We want to answer or redirect the bad facts so that they are either neutralized or, if possible, converted into something that aligns with your good points. I use this chart to map out what part of the case will address which fact and to map out the things that I have to hit in opening, closing with each witness. But bring it back to our story, this final chart represents the characters and the different events that we have to navigate, the big data on the case, the overall components of the story. It's a big list of points, but the thing that ties it all together is actually the story that you weave based on that. It makes it all make sense to the fact finder. The good bad fact chart establishes the borders of the story, the twists and turns that you have to hug. When you have all that together, you build the story, you understand the narrative that you, that based on the facts as you understand it and how they're going to weave through all of those in a way that just makes intuitive and logical sense. The way I just described is, of course, not the only way to come up with a story of a case. You can do psychodrama work with your client to focus on making him or her the hero of the story and pull out the issues. You could do a good old-fashioned brainstorm where you list or free ride ideas and see what sticks. You could spend a lot of time trying to fill in the blank of this is a case about X and fill in the story with what ties it all together as the overarching theme from which your story then unfolds everyone's brains though are a little bit different. Find out what others do, try different things, find your own approach. Like we say in the intro, litigation is an art and you should find your own style that best fits you and each individual case. Thank you for listening and I hope this episode was helpful. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always, and I mean always, welcome. You can email me at one at us.af.mil. That's A-L-L-E-N dot A-B-R-A-M-S dot one at us.af.mil. Or you can email Daryl Johnson at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases.